Father, I thank you at this very moment that you are looking down in this renovated car lot. You had these people and this day in mind, not just when we bought the building, but when you built the earth. To assemble these people and to announce to them hope of the mercy you want to give them of the plans that you want to accomplish in their life, no matter how many years they've lived away from you. God, I thank you that today is the beginning of the future. And the future that you have is much greater than the past that we've lived. No comparison because of Christ. And God, I thank you that it can start and for some will start today. We just say yes to you. We're here, we're seated. Our ears are ready. And we're begging you for a word. I certainly don't know what these people need. You do. So use the power of your eternal scripture to rivet every heart to hear what heaven, the message is for them. Father, all over the world, your church has many gathered and even heading toward darkness now. But still, many are gathering in the States. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would descend, bring many people even in the last minute into the house of God and change their life by bringing people to your table, into your family. Everything that's old, discarded, everything that's new is received. Father, please change our life Give us a heart of mercy as we drink in your mercy. And thank you, Jesus, for purchasing all mercy with your perfect and powerful blood. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. At the conclusion of of last week's message, I shared with you um, a story from... These, um, the set of 30 stories of the Jumpstart Ministry, a ministry that's dedicated to the, to the celebration of lives of prisoners that Jesus Christ has saved while they were in their institution. And now that they're out, Jumpstart Ministry is committed to helping them transition into housing and job placement. Beautiful ministry. As soon as I get in the parking lot last Last week, a woman from, I think it was probably this second service, said, thank you for sharing about this because my husband and I and our company employs these men. And I didn't know it. She said, when we first were approached by the ministry, said, would we like to hire inmates? We were a little skeptical until we saw the beauty of what God was doing in their lives and we wanted to be a part of it. Because you see... The more that you experience the mercy of God, the more you want others to experience it as well. Today we're going to look at one of the most beautiful expressions of God's mercy in uh, in all of the scripture. And it's in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Even if you didn't know anything else about the Bible, you probably could look at that text and say, "Mm, that's full of hope. That's good stuff there. Now, that's where I'd planned last week 
to take us. But the more I studied it and the neighborhood in which it lives, the more that I saw two things were happening, a great tension in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus Christ was determined to distribute mercy. The religious establishment was determined to hinder the distribution of mercy. The religious leaders were sort of like a landowner that came to a small Midwest town and 20 miles north of the town bought 100,000 acres of land and dammed up the river that had, flown into the, had flooded into the town for years and, and now there was no more water for the town because he used it all for himself. This is what the religious leaders were like. They were keeping mercy, the mercy of God from the people who needed it. And Matthew chapter 12 highlights this tension so much that I'm thinking to myself, there's got to be a, a reason that every scripture is written. And I think there is a danger in the very fact that the people of God, if we're not careful, could actually hinder God from distributing mercy to this city. We could be part of the problem. So let's see how this plays out in Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, when they use the word unlawful at the end of that passage, they're referring to uh, a couple things. In the Bible, when God first encountered his people in the Old Testament, remember, they were pagan, loving, idol, worshiping, um, never before had experienced God. And so he gave them 613 laws, 613 instructions of how to establish an orderly, God-honoring society. God did that. Now, in addition to that, and a lot of these laws had to do with work. When it's right to work, when it's not, why you need to take a day of the week called the Sabbath and gather with the people of God to thank the Lord for work and to let your soul rest in the kind of music that we just sang. Who would want to miss that? Oh, I feel so much better after hearing magnify the Lord. So God said, you need to take a day off. So part of the work laws were in the 613. Well, the Pharisees, which we're studying about today, the religious establishment, Pharisee means separated one, and they were considering themselves separated from all the bad people in life. In addition to God's laws, they invented 39 new categories to define what work was. And within the 39 categories they developed, there were many subcategories just so that you would make sure you could always know if you had or had not worked on the Sabbath. It was a burden for all of these people to obey these laws that were outside of the laws of God. So on this particular day, these Pharisees flagged the disciples for the law they broke was for being hungry and for walking through a field and plucking grain from the top of wheat and eating it on the Lord's day. And they were charged with the crime, hear this, of farming. Jesus replied to their 
that charge by reminding them of a story in which God showed his delight to use what he's created for the enjoyment of his people. He answered, haven't you read what David did? Now, when Jesus said, haven't you read? That's like saying, do you not know the simplest stories of the Bible? Now, he's talking to religious guys who prided themselves on Bible stories. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priest. So here's David, who would soon become Israel's greatest king, was with his, a, a few of his troops, his soldiers. They were hungry. They went into the worship center and there at the front of the church was bread that was normally used in a sacred thing, but it wasn't being used anymore. And so they just ate it up. No harm in that. It's just like when we finish the Lord's Supper and I watch these children come and drink cup after cup of the juice. Doesn't bother me. They're thirsty. But it bothered these people. It bothered these religious leaders. And Jesus told this story to say, listen, God was delighted to feed these people, these soldiers in his temple. Delighted. So then Jesus makes a statement. Something greater than the temple is here, gentlemen. In other words, the most, even though a worship center is great, the purpose of the worship center is not to come to the worship center. The purpose to come here is to encounter God. It's not like, check, I came. No, check, I met God and gave him my life. The purpose of reading the Bible is not to know the Bible. The purpose of reading the Bible is to know God. Something greater is here, and that is Jesus. That's why Jesus said, so listen, whenever you come, let me tell you, the purpose of coming here is to encounter God, love him, receive his love, and then go distribute it like crazy. That's why you do church, and that's why Jesus made this statement to them. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's like saying, I desire that you would be a loving, kind, Christ-sharing person, not someone dedicated to rituals. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the innocent. And here he's referring to the disciples that they had just said were lawbreakers. The problem with the religious leaders of his day is they were focused on the wrong thing. And here's why I believe Jesus would have us at least investigate this part of the story because of this haunting principle. Some people spend all of their life learning what the Bible says, yet miss what the Bible means. Probably the biggest thing I've said here in years. Some people spend all of their life I know what the Bible says, and God says, yes, but you do not know what it means. The difference between being saved and not saved. And then Jesus gives a massive, oh, by the way. I love when Jesus says, oh, by the way. In regard to the Sabbath and my disciples eating grain in a field on the Sabbath, oh, by the way. Love what he says, oh, by the way. 
The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he's saying, hey, listen. The purpose of the Sabbath is not checking. I came to church. I gave. No, the purpose of the Sabbath is what Jesus is to, for my disciples to walk with me. And if on the Sabbath they're walking with me in a grain field and they want to eat wheat that I have grown, and in that eating, they are enjoying me more, then they can do whatever they want because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I own it. I rule it, and I do whatever I want to on the Sabbath. He owns the seventh day, and he owns Every day. So now, this sort of sets us up. This is a, sort of an introduction. We now know that we're going to have a, a discussion about what can and can't be done on the Sabbath. It's just sort of, you can feel it coming, and it comes now. Going on from that place, Matthew 12, 9, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, at the end of verse 10, that looks like a question, doesn't it? I mean, you got a question mark. That's not a question. Because you, you ask a question, you ask a question in order that you want to know what is right. These people ask a question in order to accuse Jesus of wrong. Because you see, in all of their laws, I told you they had those 39 categories. There was a law that they had developed, a whole category, of what could be done medically on the Sabbath. Can't make this up. Not pursuing God, just pursuing rules. So here's the deal. Medical work could be done. This is not God, this is man. Medical work could be done on the Sabbath if it saved life. So they're looking now and saying, this man has a shriveled hand. That's not life-threatening. If Jesus answered, yes, he can be healed on the Sabbath, then they will say, Jesus is a phony. They were just setting him up to trap him. Now think about this. This man had lived with indignity of a deformity all of his life. He had spent all of his life hiding, wrapping, covering his hand so that no one would see it. And now they're making this man the center of attention, not for the purpose of giving him mercy, but for determining whether he's a candidate for mercy. It's a sad condition of their Hearts. Well, Jesus never backed down from these guys, so he confronts them with a pretty interesting question. He said to them, if any of you, you know, this is like working on the Sabbath. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Well, the answer is, of course you would. Because if you leave that animal in that pit, it will die and if it dies, it's going to affect your business, so you'll lose the life of a sheep. You're going to, it's going to affect your business, which it affects your ability to uh, pay income for your family. So for the sake of life, pull the sheep out of the pit. And they should agree with that. 
Now he argues from the lesser to the greater. If that's true, then this is true. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. If you're going to spend all of your life worrying about an animal, then 10,000 times more worry about all of the people in this city that are without hope. Now, after saying that, Jesus issued this giant command, stretch out your hand. Now, I just love every time these commands are given in, in the Gospels. I mean, that's so gutsy to me. You're looking at a man with a deformed hand. Matter of fact, I prayed in between the services after sharing this. I did actually pray for a hand injury that somebody brought to me. At, and I, I, I love that. I, I pray. I love praying for big things. But as I held that woman's hand and looked at that injury, I went, wow, I wish I had the power to say, stretch out your hand. That's quite confident. And you can pull that off if you are the son of God. The answer to that was, so he stretched out his hand and it was completely restored. Thus we have (laughs) the moral of the story. The Pharisees were determined to do nothing. Jesus was determined to do good. Now, if that happened in this service today, medical miracle, don't you think, listen, if that happened in that synagogue, don't you think that somebody, that symbol over there, don't you think that somebody should go find a symbol? Somebody should go find a drum and everybody should find a voice and there should be a new praise song written just for that miracle. And maybe it should sound something like this. The hand I hid, I lift up high to him who's come to hear my cry. Christ, my healer, mercy revealer, Lord of the day and king of the night. Yeah, this is a time for singing celebrating, applauding God. Nope. This is a time for those guys to have a secret meeting. Matthew 12, 14, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Matthew chapter 12 is filled as with no other gospel the concentration in the gospel, no other chapter, with just one rejection after another. And I I would put forth before you that you have to be completely hard-hearted to reject Jesus. I can give you a number of reasons to reject me. Matter of fact, in between the services... My wife's out of town. I didn't know if it would be okay to wear a Nike shirt. She texted. She said, the shirt selection is okay, but zip up your collar. She said, so the collar will stand. So I have lots of flaws. (laughs) There's lots of reasons. That's minor. There's larger ones that she would say, yeah, that guy that teaches you every Sunday is pretty irritating. But you can't say that about Jesus. 
You reject his goodness and it just magnifies your badness. Well, once the Pharisees made it clear that they, wanna, they were going to try to dam up God's mercy from flowing to those who needed it, Jesus moved on. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. Now, when it says that he withdrew, he ain't running. Listen, Jesus was willing for these men to put him to death at the right time. This wasn't the right time. Even Jesus Christ controlled the time of his own death. He controls everything. No, this was not a day for dying. This was a day for healing. He healed them all. Lucky you if you were happened to be in this district, in this region on this day. Everybody got healed. Now, listen, Jesus Christ obviously does not heal everybody. A lot of people in Israel in his ministry didn't get healed because he didn't see them. He didn't interact with them. A lot of people today, great saints of God, don't get healed. But on this day, everybody in all of the villages got healed. Why was there 100% complete healing that day? Well, to fulfill a very important prophecy. This healing was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on that man and he will proclaim justice to the nations. So beginning in verse 18, we're looking 700 years back. Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah was telling the people of God he is sending a representative from heaven to earth, a king, and this is what the king will look like. So you won't miss him. I mean, it's not just important that God would send a king because if God were to send a bad king, that's bad news if you're weak. So he's saying, I'm sending a good king. So you'll know that this good king will be known by justice Healing, power, mercy. That's how you know that my king has been sent from heaven. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. In other words, when Jesus Christ came, yes, he was fully God. But when he uh, wrapped himself in humanity, he made himself to be in need of the Holy Spirit's anointing. So the Holy Spirit was on this human frame of Jesus and gave him the power to heal. So when, when God says to hear, <clears throat> I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations, this word justice, though it's good, is not exactly what you would be thinking it is when you look it up in the Greek word krino, to judge. So Jesus Christ has come to make a judgment to all of the nations, to the Jews and to all the nations outside of Israel, nations that Israel would at one time said are untouchable and unreachable. Here, it's a big verse 
The Spirit of God is coming on Christ, and he's going to make a judgment, a statement. Listen, when you go to the courtroom and a judge says, I'm passing a judgment now, what that means is this is the way it's going to be. You ever been to the courtroom when you hear a judge judge say something? It's going to be that way. So that's really what it means. Jesus is saying, this is the way that it's going to be forever. Here's, here's how it's going to be. The poor and the oppressed and the sick and the persecuted and the guilty who seek forgiveness will always be included in my kingdom. That's the way it's going to be. That's his judgment. Part two of his judgment. The haughty, the prideful, the knowledge-loving, position-seeking, self-affirming, wealth-hoarding, mercy-denying people, they will have no part in my kingdom. This is my judgment. So that's really what's wrapped up in this. Pharisees, not included. Poor and oppressed, included. And this statement is, was so rejected. It was rejected then, rejected now. And that's why Matthew offers this comment on it. He will not quarrel or cry out, No one will hear his voice in the streets. In other words, what I just told you, the poor in spirit get in, the haughty are left out. Now, it took me a while this week to figure out why was this verse put in here. It is Matthew's way, Isaiah's way of saying, Jesus did not come to make a big deal about this statement. Like, this word quarrel means to be engaged in a street brawl. In other words, when Jesus first came, he came to love and to heal and to teach and to forgive, not to quarrel. He never got in any street fights. We wish he would have. (laughs) In fact, we want him to right now. Come on, Lord. Throw down. But he said, the purpose of his first coming is not to quarrel. Not to execute judgment. And because the purpose of his first coming was not to execute judgment, people regard Jesus now as he's going to never execute judgment. That would be the worst mistake you could ever make. Even in my quiet time this week, I was comforted by these words to a suffering church in Greece. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, 6. God is just. He will, re- he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God with everlasting destruction. But the reason that Jesus is not quarreling now, this is so horrible. He says, I don't need to push that. 150,000 people die every day around the world, most of whom enter a Christless eternity of unending suffering. Why does God want that to, to speed that up? He doesn't. So that will happen. But right now, instead of rushing into judgment, quarreling, you know what he's rushing into now? Forgiving. Back to our original verse. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Bruised reed. 
If you went to the marshy areas in Palestine or Egypt, you would see plants growing out of the water whose stalks were strong enough to be useful for various projects. Carpenters would take the stalks and use them as, as yardsticks, rulers. Talented shepherds would take those, those reeds and punch holes them and make primitive flutes out of them. But if something happened at the river before someone could get there and the reeds were bent, like wind or a large heavy bird landed on it and broke it, the reed was unusable and would have to be thrown away. And so then he talked about a smoldering wick, another thing that could be disrupted in its usefulness. In the day in which Jesus lived, the way that you would make a candle is you would take some fabric and uh, put it in a, a jar, the jar containing animal fat or olive oil, and it would soak up through the fabric, and then you would light it and you would have a flame for your house. Unless the fabric was faulty and it just couldn't hold a flame or um, wind going through the house would blow it out. And then all you got was smoke, like you had burned toast, which doesn't smell good. And so now this smoldering wick is offensive. And so that's what makes this passage so glorious because God is not talking about here reeds growing in the river and candles burning in the house. He's talking about people that have been damaged. And the promise of Matthew 12, 20 is God loves damaged people. And he has no intent of ever throwing them away. No desire. He wants them. No such thing as an unwanted person in the eyes of God. This, was, this is what makes abortion such a tragedy in our culture that 3,000 babies tomorrow, through the, the avenues that we have set up, 3,000 babies will be taken out of their mother's wombs and discarded with a statement of you're unnecessary, you're not wanted. God never says that about anybody he doesn't say that about a mother in crisis pregnancy. He says, I want you, mom. I can do great things in your life. He doesn't say that about the child in her womb. What he does say is, church, you who have tasted the mercy of God, go help that mom and go help that baby. And so just down the road, Carolina Pregnancy Center, so grateful to partner with a place that loves those mothers and loves those babies. The reason that Jesus left heaven was to seek after discarded people and to restore damaged people. For everyone who's ever been told you are unwanted, Jesus Christ says, I want you. For everybody who's ever been told you have no use, Jesus says, you are of enormous use to me. This verse was so impactful to a pastor in 1630 named Richard Sibbs that he wrote a 128-page book on that verse alone called The Bruised Reed because it's the gospel galore. Not a more hopeful verse in the Bible for those of us who failed. And everyone in this room, we fall in the category of those who have what? Failed. And that's who Jesus came for. That's what he said. Mark 2, I've not come to call 
those who got it right, I've come to call sinners. What did the angel tell Joseph to name his son? You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus didn't come to destroy those who failed. He came to save them. That's what Matthew 12, 20 is all about. While before you in your mother's womb, he knew you would sin. Before he created the earth, he knew you would sin. And before all of that happened, he planned to send Jesus, not to destroy you, but to save you. One blogger recently said it like this. Your brokenness, whatever form it takes, is no barrier to Jesus. It's an invitation to trust and be loved by him. Well, what a perspective that is. I've done this. That's a barrier. No, it's not. It's an invitation. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made Jesus who had never sinned to to absorb our sin in his body so that we might become the righteousness of God. Every damaged heart can be made new by Jesus Christ. He delights in restoring damaged hearts. He has no intention of throwing damaged hearts away. You know, many people lay down at night when they try to go to sleep, which for them is the worst part of their day. All they can see is like, you know, reflections, memories over and over again of who they are and what they've done. You are the perfect candidate for Jesus and to experience his grace to remove all of those, all of that guilt. One man said, said this, grace is a room of a thousand mirrors all reflecting the face of Christ. I got a text from a, a, a young girl after the first service. And uh, that's the only note she took, like an elementary age girl, hurting. And I know what she's hurting about. And that's all the only note she took. And I said, well, hallelujah. She came to church, and that's what she heard. Grace is a room of a thousand mirrors, all reflecting the face of Christ. There's a place in God's kingdom for broken reeds and Flickering wicks. You know, you today probably, just imagine this, you probably feel, maybe on the left side here, you feel like a a broken reed. Maybe, I don't know who it was that told you, either somebody else or you're, maybe you heard it wrong in church, maybe the church got it wrong. But you left somewhere long ago saying, I'm not useful to God. Now think about this. This broken reed, Jesus Christ comes along and takes it up in his hands, gently repairs it and presses it against his lips and plays such beautiful music that the angels say, where did you get that instrument that is playing this beautiful song? And Jesus says, it was the broken reed. And you know what you need to do, some of you in here? Stop comparing yourself to others. I mean, because I'm I'm the the one talking, maybe you compare yourself to me or you compare yourself to the singers and you think for some reason there's a difference between you and others. Stop it. Here's what you need to do. Every time God picks up 
another broken reed, the music that he plays through that reed, that song has never been played before. So just let him do in your life what he wants to do. Some of you feel so weak, you're like this burned out candle. Just that's a good word we, for us in this culture, burned out. Your, your wick is smoking and you said there will never be the possibility again of, of, of a flame. You know what you need to do? You just to go home today, lay down beside Christ and let the Spirit of Jesus begin to blow. And then tomorrow, stay with Him again. And the next day, blow again until that flickering, smoking wick becomes a mighty flame. That's what I'm doing in my life right now. God, keep blowing. Keep blowing on my wick. And I'm waiting for the flame to burn a bit brighter. I can't prove this, but I'm going to say something. I think I know why you come to church. If I had to guess, I know why you come to church every Sunday. That's not exactly a bad message to hear. Pretty encouraging. Hope for the reed, hope for the wick. But I think there's another reason you come every week. It's just nice to hear that there is a great ending to the story of my life and a great ending to the story of this world. So much would tell you right now there's not going to be a great ending to the story in the world. As never before in my lifetime, I can just identify the world with one word, chaos. 25,000 troops in Washington, D.C. for the inauguration. Hundreds of armed men and women around the state capitals in every state of the Union. Chaos. And people say, well, it's for protection, and yes, it is. Glad they're there. But how long can they stay? The rest of our lives? What happens when they leave? Many people say that the greatest need in the United States today is a vaccine. Other people say the greatest need in the United States today is a new political administration. But not many people are saying the greatest need in life is a fresh wind and fire from heaven, the power of God. And to not rely upon God as our greatest need is a recipe for horrible calamity. A year like the one that we just lived through can cause even the strongest Christian to wonder, is evil going to triumph over God in the end? Because it sure looks like it is now. And God says, not even close. Not even a fair fight. This is how the passage ends. A bruised reed he will not break. New life for you. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Until he has brought justice through to victory. How far reaching is this? In his name the nations will put their hope. There is hope for the world because Christ will not stop until he broadcasts this message to all the hopeless, oppressed, sick, diseased, dying, 
sin-laden people around the world. This message of the gospel ends in eternal triumph. You know what our problem is as believers? We view life as a photographic still shot and forget that it's a movie. And the executive producer determines how it ends. And he ends with this message that because of this Christ, all the nations will one day, through Jesus, live in hope. So what do we do with this message? Number one, we drink it in. Open our lives and say, make me new. I'm a bruised reed. Play your music through me. I'm a smoldering wick burned out. Blow your flame and make me new, O God. You pray that through Jesus because he died on a cross to absorb your brokenness into his perfect body and to give you his perfection into your body. It's just a trade. Trade for all that you are, for all that he is. Just trade. He'll make you new. Second thing we do with this message is we spend the rest of our life broadcasting that to the nations. We used to have this verse by the offering box for years so that every time somebody put a dollar in that box or a million dollars, be nice. You would know how serious we are that every dollar in our mind is going to broadcast this message through the internet, through all ministries, some here, the trickle effect, to there. Everything is to broadcast the message of Christ to the nations. That's the only reason we believe we exist. In his nation, the nations will put their hope through faith in Christ, anyone's future can be far different than their past. Jesus Christ is the author of the greatest comeback stories that have ever been written. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, author of life, author of the comeback story. I thank you, God, for the 10,000 times I've come to you as a bruised reed, as a burned out candle. And you picked me up, pressed me to your lips. And lo and behold, out came beautiful music. The music of forgiveness. The music of new joy. Even the music of being able to preach. You did it. I was bruised. I was broken. You made me new. And for all the times of God, I came to you burned out. Wanted to quit everything. Scared lonely, lacking willpower and energy. There I was laying on the ground, people praying for me somewhere. 
And in your sweet time, God, your perfect time, you blew. The Holy Spirit, through my heart, through my mind, through my veins, through my body, and I got back up. And I had hope again. Lord, do that. Do that in the hopeless. Do that in the disheartened. Do that in those who feel forsaken. Do that in those who would not even give themselves a second chance. Tell them that they are a reed that you love, a flickering wick that you adore. And God, I pray now that this message, which is preached to just a few hundred people, would you give us the privilege that it would trickle across the state to the coast across the ocean, to England, across Europe, to the Middle East, India, China, to every island in the Pacific and Atlantic from north to south. May all of the nations hear of the hope of the Jesus who makes all things new. It's in his name I pray. Amen.